Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. All right, guys, so it has been far too long since I have had a special featured guest, John Atek, on board. So he and I got together and uh, decided we need to do an episode again and get a little catch up on what John has been up to, uh, which has been a lot. And uh, basically, it is always uh, just a pleasure to just kind of just kind of pass the time uh, with whatever John's got in his mind. And what we have on our mind this week is opening minds. You know, this uh, that has been a very central theme of this channel for uh, for a very long time. In in many ways, I haven't particularly expressed it that way, but I think anybody, any of my longtime listeners or watchers, will definitely readily agree with that. And uh, if I am, if if I'm doing anything, it is an, it is attempting to open people's minds to other ideas than what they already have, and maybe looking at the world with a more macro lens than the micro lens we tend to look at the world through. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Chris. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you that opening minds, the, the notion of um, helping us all to, to think better and think more, to, to adopt um, differing points of view, to, to, to listen a little bit better to what other people are saying. Um, that's been the driving force. I mean, I, I remember when we first met in Toronto in June 2015. Eh? So, <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> pretty much our fourth anniversary. Um, that, that 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 was that was what drew us together. That that we were both people who'd had to understand our involvement in a an authoritarian set of ideas, and we both. I mean, I you know, for me, I I left. 30 years before you did uh, but that's because I'm a great deal older than you are um, and that we both had to go through that phase of, of saying is this true it, you know are these ideas true and I remember you you saying to me that, that you were surprised at how few people do that and I said yes that's the same for me as soon as I realized that there were flaws in the system, I wanted to understand, I wanted to go further. But most people, they, they just, they've got used to the routines, they've got used to the habits of thought, and so they, they stay within those habits of thought. And for me, it was much more interesting to say, I reject it all. Now, where do I stop from? You know, what's happening? You know, let's read a book about the brain, because we're not meant to read about that, you know, and things like that. So opening minds is, is fundamental. And also the notion of the guru, the notion of some source of uh, ultimate wisdom that, you know, that is handed out to us. That, that for me, that's a, a silly idea. If you want to learn to play the piano, by all means, find a concert pianist who is expert and has authority and can teach you. But if you want to know about the universe, you're probably going to have to go to quite a lot of different experts. And there's a real difference between rank authority, where somebody's the boss and has a gun and can tell you what to do, you know, or has a gavel to bang or what have you, 
and expert authority where somebody has developed an understanding of a subject. So um, for me, it was coming away from that rank authority, you know, um, how do I do what Ron says, through to, which is, uh, you know, basically abandon my family, <laughs> ruin the lives of a lot of people. Coming away from that philosophy to a philosophy of um, how can I better understand the world and, and what's important. And for me, what, what is important is fundamentally compassion. It's the, the notion of caring about other people, caring about the world in which we live, caring about the other species in the world in which we live. Uh, and how that works. And, and I want, very much wanted to put together a, a set of positive ideas. I suppose that's been with me since my teens to see, is there a rational argument that says it's better to be nice to other people? You know, or it, was Machiavelli right? And uh, it is better to be feared than loved. And uh, I'm still perhaps deluded, but I'm still convinced that, that it is our concern for others, our pro-social activity, that, that is the best part of, of, of people. And that, and that willingness to discourse rather than attack, you know, to, to, to disagree agreeably is the phrase I, I keep using. I mean, I've, yes. I've, I've recently, in the last month, I've had three uh, public attacks on me, which I'm not even going to bother to go into. And it's just sort of, why don't these people come and talk to me? You know, one of them can't even spell my name properly. You know, I mean, it's slightly disrespectful, I think. And he's meant to be an academic. But um, that, that through discussion and debate, we can move somewhere. So I wanted to say, well, what are the simplest things that, that I would like all teenagers to understand? You know, I, I mean, math and English and woodwork and things like this, the geography, history, they're all very important. But, but what are the things I'd really like all teenagers to understand? And there are two things that are significant to me. One is recruitment and seduction. Mm -hmm. How do people sell things to other people? And what are the signs of that? What are the indications of that? The other is human predators. There's very small percentage of human beings who are actually treating the rest of us as prey. You know, they don't care about us. They, when you analyze the leaders of authoritarian groups, um, you know, there's controversy about whether we're allowed to call things cult groups or not. Well, let's call them what they are. The ones I'm bothered about are, are the authoritarian groups because I do believe in cooperation, collaboration, democracy. I believe in consensus. Um, and so individuals who want to rule the roost, who want everybody to do what they say, who won't listen to others, are dangerous to humanity. Um, I've just watched this uh, a, a three-hour BBC series called Victoria's Children, which is their extracts from the letters of Queen Victoria to her nine children. She was very productive. Um, nine children. And she was a horrible monster. You know, she writes to her oldest daughter um, that, that you will almost always find that children are a disappointment, for example. You know, that she 
tells them off. She even when her you know her daughter is is basically married to the man who is going to become emperor of Germany, so she has to become empress of India so that she's got as good a title. She's telling her off all the time. She's you know because she's the queen, and you get this model of a of a narcissistic person. Um, have you seen The Favorite? The Oscar-winning film. No, I have not seen that yet. I have heard it is amazing. It, it's wonderful. Uh, Olivia Coleman playing Queen Anne. That in the trailer, there's this bit where one of the footmen is is kind of doing what they're meant to do because they're a lower class of people, of course, to the monarchs. Um, and she says, "Did you look at me?" And she says, "Look at me." And he looks at her and she says, "Don't look at me." And this <laughs> whole sense of control and tyranny that basically is human history that we've allowed these terrible people to be in charge. And <clears throat> there's been an evolution from that, you know, maybe starting in the Commonwealth in the 1640s in the civil war in England, where a king lost his head because uh, God didn't actually want him to keep it, despite his belief in the divine right of kings. That then got lost with, you know, by bringing his son back to take over, who was very vindictive towards these people afterwards. Then you had the, the wonderful American Revolution, the, the notion of the Bill of Rights, the idea that all men are created equal and eventually it was extended to people who weren't white as well. <laughs> even, women, even women are considered equal in some parts of the world. Gradually, these ideas have progressed. This idea of equalism, of equality has progressed. I believe fundamentally in this, and I think that we still have a significant problem, which is that there are some very narcissistic, predatory, psychopathic people out there. So, and they have very specific techniques. So I, I've spent a long time studying recruitment and seduction. You know, what do pickup artists do? What do recruiters into authoritarian groups do and you find that there are commonplaces so you know, my project most recently has been this this little thing called opening minds which is not incorporated in any way it's, it's just me and my mates it, it, and you are one of my mates so you can come <laughs> along too um, people who want to discuss in a an amicable way the influences in our society and, and what we might do to it to improve society so I sat down with my 17 year old son Sam and we made a couple of little videos which we yesterday put up on on YouTube um, under the heading op opening minds and there's a little golden flower to tell you that's us because lots of people are trying to open minds around here um, and we made one video about uh, recruitment and seduction and another about human predators. Um, I think that, you know, just that, you know, I, I looked at, for example, uh, terrorist recruitment, something I started studying terrorism in the 1990s, because it seemed to me that if, if we were to expand our definition and look at authoritarian groups, that we should look at all of them. And you then find that they follow the same patterns and that's surprise yeah yeah you know you go into the counter-cult world and you'll find the little pockets of x this and x that next the other and they don't talk to each other 
because they think the experience is is so different you know uh, we believed in the coming of the great pumpkin whereas whereas you all had t-shirts that were orange you know so obviously but it's like no pumpkins are orange too you know there are commonalities between these things and finding that that the fundamental is human behavior that well, exactly and that is something i hit on years ago talked about extensively when it happened because it was such a revelation to me as a as a recovering cult member to realize uh the, the incredible uh catharsis or peace of mind or something that kind of came over me the day I realized L. Ron Hubbard was operating on the same playbook that Jim Jones, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, however, wherever you want to draw the line to authoritarianism, Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these guys operate on the same basic playbook. It's their, their success really is a measure of how well they run that playbook, how hard they run it, and how many enablers they get around them who mm -hmm. can help them in their cause. I mean, you had, you know, uh, Hitler, we talk about Hitler all the time, but, you know, maybe we should be putting a lot more attention on Goebbels and uh, the propaganda ministry and these things, because they were incredibly uh, instrumental in Hitler's rise to power and, continue, and consolidation and continuation of that power. And indeed, Go Goebbels' rules of propaganda can be found online. Exactly. Um, and these people use this stuff. So let me, let me, you know, there's so many directions we could go here. Let me ask you something that I get asked all the time that's a pretty burning question for me still. And I'm curious what your opinion and take on this is. Uh, in talking about these authoritarians or narcissists or these, you know, these destructive cult leaders, do you think these guys, do you think that's learned behavior, genetic behavior, or a combination of both? I, I, have the, I have the same quotation for all aspects of human behavior. It comes from a man called William Shakespeare. <laughs> quite clever. And he said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. The more that I've studied antisocial personalities, narcissistic personalities, Machiavellian personalities, there are so many names for them, malignant narcissists, the more it's become evident to me that some people are born this way. Um, there's an excellent book by uh, Kent Keel, who was one of Robert Hare, the, who wrote the Hare Psychopathy Checklist, one of his students, and he went out and he's tested hundreds of criminal psychopaths using a very refined fMRI. He helped Siemens actually focus the fMRI so it's far more accurate than it used to be. And he has a, a truck that he, he goes to a prison with. He did actually try uh, finding psychopaths in the general population, but nobody volunteered. So he's gone into Surprise. prison. Yeah. In, who wants to find out who wants to be a psychopath, right? Like, yeah. And it's what? like, what are you gonna pay me? <laughs> right. Um, how can I help humanity? Um, but he found, and I think it's generally accepted that, that I mean, Robert Hare says 50% uh, of all crimes are committed by 2% of the population, um, the classifiable psychopath. Uh, they have traits which are measurable. He has the, the checklist, which again, you can look at online, the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Revised, it's called in the current. And this is used all over the world to assess 
what I'm calling the criminal psychopath, uh, because there are lower orders. If you score more than 30 out of 40 points on this, you're in the club. You've become a criminal psychopath. However, he now had, is basically saying from 30 down to four on the chart of variants of sociopath. So he differentiates the terms that way. Nobody else does. Everybody else has got their own definitions for these things. Yeah, these so are much. very loosey-goosey terms, unfortunately. We do not have rigorous, exact definitions for them. No, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm willing to go with Hare's definition of, of the, what I will call the criminal psychopath. And these, that would include serial killers. It would in, include people who, who have zero empathy. They, they have no feeling for others. But these people, he, you know, what Ken Keel found was that they have a deficit in the paralimbic system. That is to say the connection between the old brain and the, the prefrontal cortex where you know, we work things out. And they basically are more likely to have a pure emotional reaction than to think things through. One example um, that I saw was a, was a guy who was in prison because he'd murdered somebody in a bar. He got into a fight and killed somebody. And he looked at the interview and he said, yeah, but if he'd looked at you the way he looked at me, you'd have killed him too. So there is no empathy for another human being. There's, now, this deficit, I am told, is not fantastically significant. It averages to about 7% less than is normal. It means that the, the person is, is emotionally triggered. And these people, again, there are three genetic alleles um, or associations of genes that are found in the criminal psychopath. Um, the, the, there's a great story. That there's a, a man called James Fallon, who's a, um, a neuroscientist in California. He runs two biotech companies. And he wanted to check if there was any problem of, of dementia upcoming in his, his, his family. So he had brain scans done. And he had the identifying labels taken off so that he wouldn't be swayed at all when looking at these brains. And he looked at the one scan and he went, this one here, who's this to his assistant? Because this one is a psychopath. And the assistant went, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> actually, Jim, <clears throat> It's you. So you've got a guy who's a neuroscientist who runs two biotech companies who all his life, he's in his 50s by this time, all his life he's believed everything is genetic. And ah. now he's looking at evidence that's saying, and he realizes that, you know, he goes to his mum and he, he, his mum says, well, uh, actually, there are seven murderers in our background on your father's side. You know, of yeah, of course, on the it's of course on the father's side. Hello, <laughs> including Lizzie Borden, who my assistant's bike tells me you know may or may not have chopped up her mum and pop in Massachusetts, but you know I wasn't there. How should I know? So he finds this out. He also works out that yes, he does have these characteristics. If he takes some bespectacled professor out for dinner one evening, the bespectacled professor will end up dancing naked on a table. If he's invited to go to a party when he's meant to be going to a funeral, he'll go to the party. Uh, he invited his brother out to Kenya and took him on a safari to Marburg. And it was only when his brother got home that he learned about Marburg Ebola. So 
he courts danger, he courts risks. He realized that the personality fitted him, but he also realized that his mother had recognized this when he was a toddler and that she had focused on him in a different way. And it meant that he is what is called a pro-social sociopath. So you've got to be careful with him, but he won't actually kill you, you know? <laughs> he might play with you a bit. Well, it's well. This is. I'm really glad that you. I did not know the answer to this question before I asked it, and I'm really glad that you went where you went with this because this, of course, reinforces a lot of what I have been studying lately and have been talking about. Kind of just because I thought this was sort of the way things were, mm. and it's only been kind of and it, and without trying to engage in confirmation bias because I try really hard to police myself with that. I definitely agree with with the things you're talking about here because I see because I know for as sure as I can be of anything that that there are not uh, single causes for any kind of behavior there's just there we're too complicated the, the number of levels that we exist at the number of causative agents that drive our behavior are so many there are so many variables going from cradle to grave, uh, in fact, even prenatal, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, variables that enter into this, because like, what did your mother consume? What environment are you in? What environment were you raised in? What was your education? None of these things are our choice. None of these things we have any power of control over, yet they vastly affect our viewpoint of the world, and thus our behavior. So, so I've, I, it wasn't a trick question, but I was curious where you were going to go with it in terms of nature, nurture, and this is, and it sounds like the perfect answer to me because it really, because there you have the genetics for, you have the genetic makeup there in that doctor for a potential serial killer, and yet he is definitely not that. <laughs> Why? Right? And you go, well, let's take a look at all the epigenetic factors, right? In other words, the environment. Yeah. And, and you, you, you have, you know, behavioral elements and symbolic elements with human beings. So because we have language, we are affected even down to the level of our, our DNA. I'm with Eva Jablonka on this and Yuval Laor through symbolism. So, again, it can work the other way that somebody can be born with a lovely, compassionate, empathetic nature. And they can develop, you know, we talked about Hitler and Goebbels. So let's add Himmler in. Himmler yep. is the head of the SS. He's the head of the Gestapo. He runs the death camps. Yet when you look at his journals and his letters, he expresses a tremendous amount of empathy. Um, there's a guy called Hans Ashkenazi who wrote a book called Are We All Nazis? Which is a book which should have been read a lot more than it was. He, as a child, was in a concentration camp. He was then in the US Air Force. He then became a psychologist looking after violent and troubled adolescents. And he looked back at the Nazi leadership and he said, you know, actually classifying these people one by one, they are none of them sadists. They're, you know, as you go down, lower down in the level, I'm afraid they are. You know, uh, Rudolf Huss, who, who, who ran Auschwitz, for example, was a sadist. Absolutely. Um, to say, yeah, you cannot say that, they, that none of them were for sure. But in the top leadership, yeah. he goes through them one after the other and he says, and with Himmler, I think you come to this peculiar state where you get a reversal that Himmler so believed in the German people and, you know, how fantastic the German people were, 
that his empathy was weaponized. And so we have this, this dangerous situation that happens in most authoritarian groups where the person who's trying to recruit you will not be a predator. They will, you know, just as you and I were, they'll think they're selling you the most wonderful jewel in the world or, or giving you the most wonderful jewel in the world. But they'll accept, you know, as the Moonies do, that you might have to use heavenly deception. Exactly. Or as the children of God do, you might have to use right. prostitution or flirty fishing to bring people to it. But so what happens is that empathetic people actually can become the worst people in cult groups. You know, that their very compassion drives them towards, you know, when you read Himmler writing orders to soldiers in the death camps, how they must celebrate German culture, that he knows that what they're having to do, piling up bodies, is distasteful. Um, but they nonetheless have to celebrate German culture, drinking German beer and singing German songs. And so he's been weaponized. So some are born predatory, some achieve it, and some have it thrust upon them. If somebody is horribly abused during childhood, then it may be that they will develop those tendencies. Among teenagers, that, that moment that, you know, the thing that got me in, involved with Scientology was a girlfriend running off with somebody. And, you know, your little heart is broken and you don't want to be hurt again. And there are two routes. One is to achieve the serenity of Buddhism, which I sadly doubt these days, much as I <laughs> admire the Buddha, because um, I've seen Buddhists get angry. Um, one of them is to achieve a serenity so nothing will ever affect you. And the other is to wall yourself off. So we now have site, websites where sociopaths advertise in, in helping young people to become as embittered and unconcerned with humanity as they are. So it can be achieved as well. And that, and that you know, in case you guys are wondering specifics wise, I mean, insoles, right? Yeah. Like you want to talk I, about sociopaths educating other people into sociopathy. There you go. Uh, curiously, I've just finished writing a chapter for, for let's promote this uh, with Steve Hassan for, for a book um, that is being published by the Oxford University Press. Oh, yes, very impressive. Mm. Um, and it focused, it, it's about lone terrorism. And in the end, we came down to two examples of that. And one of them is Elliot Roger, who was an involuntary celibate. And um, yes, classic example. In, in Isla Vista near yep. Santa Barbara. And there was already a name in the incel community for what he did, which is called going Sedoni, uh, I think it is, George Sedoni, who had killed three people in his quest for. So the, in that community, and again, it, it'd be wrong to suggest that the incel community, these people are like this, they're Nazis, they're not. There are a lot of people in the incel community who are horrified by what Elliot Roger did, but they still identify as people who are, uh, they tend to be men who, who are unattractive to women. And in looking at Elliot Roger in reasonable depth and watching his rather scary videos of himself, it became apparent that, that we, what we were probably dealing with there was somebody with Asperger's syndrome. We were certainly dealing with somebody, he was, according to his mum and his mum's lawyer, he, he was uh, diagnosed with Asperger's and refused to take the anti-aggression 
medicine. And you just, you know, you sort of say, oh, if only I could have, he was in therapy from the age of eight to the age of 22. And I hope that his therapists really feel ashamed because yeah, about he lacked social skills. He, need to learn, he needed to learn how to talk to people. It's not, you can't just walk up to, well, I suppose you can just walk up to women and say, how about it? You know, but that's not usually going to be very successful. That, that what you need is a social bond, an ability to befriend people. And, you know, and, and he's all, well, you know, I've got this Neiman Marcus sweater that costs $500. I've got a BMW. Why won't women have sex with me? And you're going, there's some thinking missing there. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he, he's somebody who is, you know, it's thrust upon him. The, the situation, which is not to deny his responsibility for the horrific acts that he committed. Um, oh yeah, no, of course. We're we're talking about causative elements here, yeah. and it's and you know another book I'll throw out there is Christopher Browning's Ordinary People, Ordinary Men. Um, that's a study in the police forces, not the military, but the police forces that were uh, drafted into uh, mass executions of uh, Polish and. Uh, German citizens and and people you know on the on the borders and fringes that the Nazis wanted killed in World War II, and these were these were people who had who were you know we we consider policemen and we should consider policemen for the most part fairly heroic individuals who report to work every single day knowing that it could be their last day on earth because of their job. Well, in America, that that's not how it is for the police here. <laughs> yeah, well, it is for it is in America, and yeah, isn't that interesting, though? It, it, well, it is, and there's a lot to say about that. We can deconstruct all kind of things. My point is that they are people of generally good intent. Absolutely. You know, is really the only point I'm trying to make there. However difficult their mental life might be, they are reporting to work and they are there to serve and protect and help. And they're cleaning up the suicides, and they're they're doing. Yes. The you know, the car crashes, the things that none of us want to know about. So Exactly. Yes. Not only do we not want to see it, we don't even want to know about it, but we leave it to them. And then when they fall down on the job or they, and I'm not, you know, please don't take me as rationalizing violence against innocent people because it's always wrong. Yes. But the pressures of that job, the, the, the lack of, of competent counseling for that profession, the the in-group thinking of that profession, the toxic masculinity of that profession, all, you know, are pushing them in various uh, directions. And the point is here that you can take good intention people and you can make that, you can weaponize their empathy, as you mentioned, you can get them on a beliefs track where they start thinking that, you know, group X are the bad guys. And they start prosecuting or persecuting Group X for, you know, for no good reason. And you've got good people, you know, doing really, really bad things. People ask all the time, how is it that smart people fall for this stupid Scientology? Well, how is it that good people fall for institutionalized evil? That's an and, and how is it really the, important question, you know? The medical profession in Germany under the T4 program murdered 180,000 of their own patients before World War II. And that, that medical doctors among the professions, I think 40% of them were members of the Nazi party. How can that be? And I think there's something there about in-groups and out-groups that, that, you know, talking about the police, Hannah Arendt, of course, talked about the banality of evil. 
um, Martin Luther King said, you know, it's not the evil people we have to worry about, it's the mediocrity. It, it's where people yeah. don't do or say anything. Exactly. And that where a culture accepts, it, Voltaire, I'm told, was the first person to complain about torture being part of the process of execution. That until, so until the early 18th century, nobody had said, oh, actually ripping somebody's guts out and burning them in front of their eyes is a bad thing. People used to go, it was a holiday. They used to celebrate this. So we have to ask some questions about enculturation and can we create a culture where people do actually care for other people and, and you know, no matter their gender, their sexual disposition, their, their color, their creed, what have you, we see it creeping up. We, you know, that I talk with atheists who are, vehemently against religion. I talk with religious people who are absolutely tolerant, <laughs> you know? Right. Hey everyone. I wanna take a moment to talk about The Great Courses Plus, an educational streaming service that I truly believe in and think is well worth your time and investment. I'm convinced that knowledge is the key to a successful and happy life. There is a sense of pride that comes with knowing what you're talking about, and it's also kind of fun to beat everyone else at Trivial Pursuit, too. With The Great Courses Plus, you have access to experts on almost any topic. You don't just get a review of some basics with these courses, you get a deep dive that allows you to really master them. With unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics as diverse as understanding the mysteries of human behavior, modern political tradition, travel photography, or even Mediterranean cooking, there is a wealth of information just to click away. And if you get the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen just about anywhere. The featured course I recommend you check out now is The Skeptic's Guide to American History. There just isn't any substitute for knowing where we have been and no better way of knowing where we're going than to know our history. In this course, Professor Mark Stoller takes a second look at some of the central themes in American history, filtering through myths and misconceptions to offer new perspectives on pivotal events, like how the evangelical upheaval of the 19th century's Second Great Awakening still impacts us today. Take a moment and sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Do it today. For a limited time only, they're offering my listeners an entire month for free on a free month trial, but you have to sign up using my URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical, and let me know how it goes. It concerns me that, that you know, I, I figure that if you take food away from people for about three days, then any one of us can be reduced to a, a level of predation, if not necessarily cannibalism, though that does happen from time to time. Um, but if you put pressure onto people, then we will react in a certain way. How can we make people more tolerant? How can we bring about a better understanding that it is only through tolerance and, and through collaboration that we as a species can resolve the, the problems ahead of us? We're still fighting wars. We haven't even grown up enough to stop doing that. We hear about these 
terrible atrocities. You know, what is happening in Sudan at the moment with the Janjaweed back in the driving seat and killing people. They're, they're just, but now they're called a paramilitary and they're operating on behalf of the state. We've got wars happening in, in North Africa. We've got all of these things where, you know, the proxy wars between Russia and, and you know, NATO. Uh, we've got the development of military power in China now, which has become very alarming in the last few years. And the development of the new Silk Road, which will inevitably mean that China is going to be the major economic power in the world in the next 10 years while it still has a completely authoritarian regime. There was all this notion in the 80s after Tiananmen Square that, <coughs> excuse me, they would uh, liberalize because they were becoming capitalist. That capitalism inevitably leads to everybody being democratic. Well, <laughs> it's like the idea that um, nature will always return to a right. It doesn't. Well, let me say this because I, um, I, I think that this, uh, th this is really important to say out loud. This isn't a matter of setting up new boogeymen. You know, there are there are reasons for concern all over the world, as you ra very rightly point out. Um, the point I think that we're trying to get to here, at least th that I see, is that um, the, the 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 change that we all want to see we all want to get along we we well I'll, I, maybe it's an unwarranted assumption but i think the vast majority of people do want peaceful lives where they just get along and they can just kind of have the life that they want to create for themselves whether you're chinese whether you're uh, israeli whether you're american british i don't know that that really matters a whole lot i think basic human instinct huh? is let's get along let's be social let's try to get you know tit for tat is what it always comes back down to at, at, a, at a science level, at a genetic level, at a social level. You know, let's have equality. Let's have equality of opportunity, uh, that sort of thing. So we want those things, and we have these boogeymen. We have these bad people, these bad actors who are doing bad things. They, for, for whatever reason, we've noted many, many times, the, the, the psychopaths tend to rise to the top because <laughs> they have this desire to, or it's thrust on them, that they are going to be in positions of leadership because they tend to have pretty strong, certain forceful personalities, and people respond to that. They shouldn't And it respond. is exactly that, that sense of certainty. That yes. They, <clears throat> which, so even intellectuals in Nazi Germany were swayed by Hitler. Now, when you actually look at Hitler's table talk, uh, which was recorded by the, um, the president of the Danzig Senate, who was the first Nazi politician to be elected into position of power. And so in the 20s, so he was a, a, a dinner guest. And in 1938, he left Germany. Uh, 37 or 38, and he wrote a book called Hitler Speaks. His name was Rauschning. And here you have his notes of what Hitler used to say at dinner. And you realize you, you're not actually dealing with a very clever human being. You're just dealing with a, a man who is very certain. I, I was reminded the other day, I read again, that at the end of his life, Hitler wanted the whole German people to be exterminated because they had failed him, which is why the battle for Berlin cost perhaps a million lives, including all of the 14-year-old Germans who were sent out 
to fight the crack Russian troops who came against them because Hitler was determined that, you know, they'd fail. That certainty is something that we fall for, that when somebody else is sure they know, you know, um, Hubbard used to say uh, in Scientology, knowledge is certainty. And that always bothered me because to me, it seemed that knowledge was uncertainty. You know, yes. understanding that, that there's more to find out. It, well, exactly. The, and the humility of vast wisdom. You, the more you learn, you know, Dunning-Kruger, right? The more, you, the more you actually know about something, the more competent you actually are, the more sure you are of how much more you have to learn. You know, and these these are real light bulb moments for people. And I and I I think I I only wish more more people out there, not my listeners. You know, I'm not. You know, when we, when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm not talking to you guys out there as though you're the problem. You're here. You're listening to what we're saying. You're reaching for more knowledge and more understanding of what's going on in the world. And this is a really, really key important element of this is this is why we fall for these people and being aware of the fact that we <laughs> are kind of prone to sales jobs. You know, I thought that was a really, really good point you made at the beginning that, you know, what should we be teaching our kids? Well, how about what a sales cycle looks like? <laughs> you know, so. And, and the, the, you know, the same things will happen that, that you know, the, the, the selling, the pitch is somebody you don't know approaches you with the assumption that they're your friend and that as soon as somebody comes along doing that you, you're looking at one of two things you know, I mean it could be genuine but you're either looking at somebody who's got something they want to sell you whether it's a belief or a product or you're looking at somebody who's suffering from mania because in normal human society while we might be friendly that intrusion into your space, that kind of, oh, wow, let's be best friends. It, it's something to be wary of. Um, I'd like to pick up what you said about witch hunting. That, yes. that for me, it's been really important to say, some people are predatory. I don't think that they should therefore be harmed for that. I think that there is a terrible, um, terrible situation in prisons the world over where people are brutalized because of the presumption of evil that is put upon them. I think everybody deserves to be treated in a compassionate and fair way. And I do think that if somebody is utterly predatory and violent, they have to be segregated from society, but they should not then be punished. And there are studies going back into the 1970s. There was a, um, a reform school called Pepper Harrow, in England and uh, they made a documentary about it in the early 1970s and then they went back 20 years later and they looked at six kids um, and this was a really you know I mean I'm relatively liberal but seeing an eight eight-year-old walking around smoking a cigarette and nobody telling them off was a bit more liberal than I, I get to but they four of the kids one had died and one didn't want to be interviewed but four of them were interviewed the rate of reoffense from Pepper Harrow was 10%. The rate of reoffense from most juvenile places is over 80%. So what they'd done was they'd said, what's the problem? How can we help? And there was this one lad who I'll never forget. He was the oldest of four children. His, his siblings all had different fathers. None of them had, 
had stayed with, with the mother. So he, at age 14, had to somehow provide for the family. She, she couldn't. She was not mentally competent to do it, I don't think. So he stole things to feed his siblings. He's put into Pepper Harrow, and he, he's 14. He cannot read and write. When they come back 20 years later, he's an area coordinator for reform schools. He's gone to university. He's got a degree, master's. And it showed that within the right setting, you can take somebody and help them to do something. There's also, a, I'm trying to remember whether it was Wisconsin or Wyoming, but in one of the US states, there was a huge program, which I think is the Montaka program, where kids were divided into a control group and a group that were kind of bombarded with counseling and help. And the results were astonishing. It, it had always been pres presumed again and again, there's nothing you can do. This is an innate tendency. By the time a person's 15 or so, they're going to be evil their whole lives. The difference between the control group and the group who are helped was just unbelievable. I think the control group in the next two years committed 16 murders after they were let out, whereas the group who'd been helped, there were no murders. So... We have to find ways of isolating people who are dangerous, or recognizing, isolating those people. And then, if necessary, we have to segregate them. You know, again, going to Robert Hare's idea, 2% of the population commit 50% of the crime. And if you look into the other 50%, you'll find a very high degree of actual illiteracy, or what's called functional illiteracy, where people can read and write, but they don't understand what they're reading. And so that, you know, those are problems that we can address and our society is not addressing them. Our awful standardized education system, which is all about learning the answers to tests rather than developing curiosity and insight. That's one of the things we have to change. And I think that the internet is doing that. I think that places like Khan Academy, Crash Course, School of Life, Book of Life, they're all, all you know, Crash Course has 9 million subscribers. I mean, how many schools can claim that, you know, these are kids who want to learn and they're being taught in a way that is accessible to them. They're not being examined. They're not being, they're being given information. And, you know, I, I had an example of this. My 17-year-old my son, Sam, was not well enough to go to school, um, as we ultimately discovered, because of sleep deprivation because he was um, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and they basically then wouldn't accept that he had a genetic sleep disorder, which means like 25% of the population, there's a number, he prefers to sleep late, but it made, made him ill. So he couldn't go to school. And he ended up having only two terms to do an eight term syllabus and he didn't go to school. He basically largely used the Khan Academy and Crash Course and he managed to get excellent exam results because he found that at school they'd say, well, look, learn, memorize this, and we'll explain it later. And he was like, hang on. With using Khan and Crash Course, he could say, no, I don't understand it yet. I need to know more. And so he developed a, a very thoroughgoing understanding of, of his subjects by approaching it in that way. School needs to be better. There's, you know, teachers need to be recognized as 
probably the most important people in society. And at the moment, they're scorned and underpaid and forced to, to actually go round this treadmill year in, year out of teaching the same boring information, which is utterly irrelevant. You know, okay, I can quote from Macbeth, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on this petty place of time. That's great. But how do I function in the world? How do I have a relationship with another person? Um, how do I decorate my house? How do I, you know, grow plants in my garden? You know, what's work about? You know, the, the, we've still in a sort of vaguely medieval curriculum, which is, has come to this point of, you know, learning the answers to the SATs so that you can then go to university and they can say, how come you can't read and write properly? <laughs> well, exactly. I learned the answers to the SATs, you know. Yeah, exactly. There's so much to deconstruct here. We don't even, yeah, there's just so much fodder oh, yeah. here. I want to like to just point out that I think all of us can see these individual examples that we think of as exceptions and go, well, that makes sense. But then we go right back two minutes later to conversations about how all the criminals need to be rounded up and just thrown, you know, throw them away and lock away, you know, throw away the key and solitary confinement for everybody. And how dare that man? And oh my God. And there's like some kind of disconnect, you know, it's like, no, that, that exception that you just saw that kid, you know, that your son, for example, chronic fatigue syndrome, 25% of the population suffers from this or however, whatever. They suffer, they suffer from a delayed sleep phase. 25% yes. have an advanced phase. Twenty, And this has only come out in the last two years. So it's, that's the kind of thing that answers questions that we've been asking for a long time. That's just one example of a causative agent. There's hundreds of them that get in the way of people being able to learn stuff. Kids, right? Adults too. Uh, these are these are things we have to tackle. We have to deal with this, and we have to stop thinking in these broad, general, nonsensical ideas of just lock them up and throw away the key. Just you know, just whatever the fill in the blank simple solution, quote unquote, is that you think is going to solve everything. It's just as delusional as the people in the cults who think that the cult leader has the answer to all the all the problems. You know, it's no, it's really no different. And the passions that get ignited over this stuff, the certainty that people drum up in themselves that, yeah. that this is the only thing we have to do. And if we just do this, everything will be great. Ah, and we, you know. we have so many examples from history that, that um, Britain in the 18th century deported criminals to Australia. And you could be deported for stealing a loaf of bread. You know what I mean? So it was, we're gonna get rid of all of the criminals. So by now Australia should be a ravening mess and and we should have this wonderful society which is crime free well the crime rates about the same in Australia and here if you look at the awful eugenics programs which happened in the US yeah um, people were forcibly sterilized there in Sweden um, in India of course in the 1970s have a get a free transistor radio if we can sterilize you based that did nothing to allay their population problems. Um, and in Germany under the T4 program. Now, because in Germany they took deaf people, they took uh, people who suffered spasticity, um, they, they took people who were Down syndrome. They, if it had been successful, this program, 
then in the current generation, Germany would have incredibly low levels of schizophrenia, of all of these conditions. It doesn't. It has the same levels as the rest of Europe. So eugenics didn't work. Uh, segregating a whole population because they were starving and oppressed didn't work. We have to look at um, gaining a deeper understanding and you know, a less, I mean, I was very surprised when I was writing Opening Minds, I, I came across this, I think it was D.H. Lawrence, the uh, famous author, talking about euthanasia for, for people who were defective in some way. And, and what a great idea it would be to round up all of the, these people and kill them. And you're kind of going, and he's regarded as one of the liberal romantic novelists of the 20th century, you know, that, that people get these mad ideas about you know, destroying a part of the population as a way of solving a problem, rather than using discussion and rather than inspiring curiosity in people and having a... See, I, I don't differentiate people in terms of their intelligence because some of the worst people I've ever met were hugely intelligent. Yeah. And my determination is that the more intelligent you are, the more capable you are of buttressing your stupidity so that you can um, well, just you know, look at Just look at the people in the cults. You yeah. know, I mean, really smart, smart, smart people who, who have no iota of critical thinking or common sense on the topic of their cult. And therefore... That, that, that is a ripple effect to the rest of their life, that kind of denial and that kind of walling off common sense in one area is going to have effects in other areas. And so you get D.H. Lawrence promoting euthanasia. Like, what are you talking about? That's insane. But at the time, it sounded like it made sense. <laughs> you know? And it was tried out and it didn't make sense. Exactly. And, I mean, I live in a country that spent the last three years with the political elite determining how or when or if we're going to leave the European Union when we have massive air pollution, which is not being dealt with. You know, we have global warming, which is very hard to deny with 97% of climate scientists now, you know, putting in their penneth of, of information. Um, but we... We have a political elite who are fighting over, you know, whether we stay or go from this thing. In the US, you have now a, a separation which I believe has existed. I think somebody on a podcast I did said, uh, he may be a clever man, this John Adok, but he knows nothing about American history. But uh, the, the period of reconstruction in the South from 1865 onwards, created in it a division in American society which is never resolved. Um, That's right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And so we are still seeing people who think that that thing they're waving is the Confederate flag. It isn't. It's the Confederate battle flag. It's a war flag. Uh, their flag actually had stars and stripes on it. Right. Um, right. You know, yeah. but I know nothing about American history. You know, as oh yeah, let's not talk about the river of lies that is believed that is that people think is as actual objective truth in the South. I mean, it's just it's beyond. Uh, which is not to say everybody in the South is all delusional. I mean, I, you know, look, it's just come on, guys. You know, there's just no, a lot to know. 
it, you, you get into a situation where a black population which has not been educated, is illiterate, is given the vote rather than being given an education. The white population, anybody who served in the Confederate Army is denied the vote. And for 10 years, there is a garrison of troops from the North to enforce the law. That caused a certain amount of resentment. You and think? You yeah. think? <laughs> On that, top of, you know, a number of other factors there. It's not like the South was, uh, didn't have some valid reasons for some of their ire and upset. But it comes down to this black and white thing of, oh, well, it's all about the slaves. And so th th nothing, nothing the South could possibly say or do could ever be right. And nothing the North could ever say or do could ever be wrong because it's all about slavery. And it's like, no, it was there's more levels to this conflict than that. And two of the states in the North were slave states. Yeah, there you go. So, and it's only, of course, two years after the war starts that the proclamation of emancipation is actually issued. But the, the point is that um, when we were talking before, you, you, were, you were talking about lies and, and the, the importance of understanding deception in the past. And I agree with you that, that if we are to move forward, you can't draw a line and move on. It's like people with the Middle East, they, they want to say, well, look, they should just stop complaining and get on with it. And you go, do you realize what happened after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire? The way that the British and the French and later the Americans interfered and created tyrannical uh, monarchies in those societies. I mean, if you look at particularly Iran, in 1953, Iran had a democratic government which was overthrown by Britain and the US. That's um, right. Kermit Roosevelt, in fact, personally went and did it. And put in charge a man who Amnesty International of course, have, have, have said was the most despicable dictator of the last half of the 20th century. Exactly. Uh, and, and this is the stuff that, you know, that these, that our governments get up to, that we just kind of give them a pass on because nationalism and wave the flag and everything we do is great and everything they do is bad. And Praise God and pass the ammunition. Yeah, it's just short-sighted nonsense. And really, kind of coming full circle here, it comes back to us not recognizing when we're being fed a, a sales job. Yeah, you we're, know? we're being duped. Even these notions, like we talk about the Chinese, for example. China is an empire of 50 different nationalities, 50 different people. Wow. At the moment, the Uyghur, who are Muslim for the most part, one million of them are in re-education camps. And yet we stopped, in my country, we stopped dealing with South Africa because 38 people were killed in detention. 38 blacks were killed, murdered in detention there. Same period of time, 180 Aborigines were murdered in detention in Australia, but we don't talk about that. But when you look at the enormities of China, or you say, you know, India, according to the United Nations, has 13 million slaves. And yet, we're first of all making the mistake of thinking that the people in charge, that's India, that's China, the people ruling, without looking at that the, the reality is that the Chinese people are oppressed by the Communist Party, and the Indian people are, to a large extent, oppressed by their own government by the ruling caste and of course in India we still are talking about a society that has not just segregation but levels of segregation um, 
it's astonishing to think of these things and to go we have to do better and then it's you know am i just a spectator to this am i just somebody who's sitting back and giving off some hot air about this or is there something i can do about this and i think you know coming back to the whole topic of opening minds i helped to establish the open minds foundation which is a tax exempt body that is seeking to raise funds to, to to finance major projects and i'm very happy that i've spent four years doing that and i'm still involved with the open minds foundation but i saw uh have a psychologist friend my friend jessica in holland who said we need a grassroots movement we need to to explain to people that we can all do this once we've you know once you've understood an idea it's not a matter of saying We'll go and see what John and Chris said about it. It's a matter of saying, well, I agree with this bit. I don't agree with that bit. And, and ha starting conversations and telling the story. Joseph Campbell uh, said that, you know, mythology is, is not history, it's psychology, which is a great statement. So all stories are valid. Every, every movie you watch is really has something to say. And... He also said every generation has to retell the stories, has to yeah. find ways of making those moral points. So, you know, I've, I've recently, just this week, I watched a Tideland, Terry Gilliam film. I'm a huge fan of Terry Gilliam. Uh, you know, Brazil, The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, Baron Munchausen, so many great films. But each of these films is, is actually, a, it asks questions. And I think it's important that we all realise that everybody realizes that, that their point of view is important, that we aren't just a, a banal mass of people who have to follow what the gurus say, but, but everybody's opinion is important. And spreading a di discussion, getting people to think about it, whether, whether you agree or, or disagree with what we say, going out there and talking about it, not shouting about it, not hitting and insulting other people, <coughs> as a consequence of our beliefs but entering into debate as you know my greatest hero perhaps would be john stuart mill mm -hmm. his essay on liberty where he explains and he was one of the cleverest men who ever lived he explains that every time an idiot says the same thing to you you have to listen again just in case you are wrong and if you will not listen then you're an idiot you know there you go um, that's I, I, I could not agree with you more, especially bringing Mills Mill into it. Uh, he is the foundational work on on free speech and, and yeah. freedom of expression. And to this day, I go back to his work uh, yeah. as as the seminal uh, ideas on it. And he was and he was very brilliant man, very brilliant writer, well worth the time to go back and, and read on liberty. And there, there he is in the 1850s saying that, that all wives are slaves, that yeah. all women. And our society are slaves. And yeah. that, uh, it's good to point out that he also acknowledged that his wife was a major part of his thinking and his writing. Exactly. That's right. He said it right from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, this was a man who was ahead of his time, you know, yeah. truly. Uh, he's not just some old white guy, as, uh, as so many of the millennials are, are, are wont to say these days. Uh, truth comes from all quarters, guys. It does. John, thank you for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up now. We could go on and on. 
as we always. <laughs> and we are going to do this more often because it has been criminal that I haven't had you on in, in as long as I have. So thank you very much for your for your time on this. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure as ever. Awesome, man. And folks, check out the, uh, I'll put a link on the show notes here to John's new YouTube channel. Check it out. There will be more content going up and uh, and is always worth a listen. Any questions, comments, feedback, please leave it in the comment section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I always appreciate your feedback, even if I don't agree with it, even if I give you a hard time in the comments about it, I still appreciate your viewership, your support, and you taking the time to let me know what your thoughts are on all of this. Truly, I do. So if that doesn't come across all the time in the comments section, then that's on me. And I, want, I just wanted to kind of say that out loud. Thanks, guys. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.